My name is Joe Valenti. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with our student ministries, with middle school and high school, as well as with our missions department. Um, if you're a parent in the room as youth pastor, I just want to invite you. There's one happening right now, and then there will be another one happening after this service during the 11 o'clock in the lower level where our youth pastor, our, our lead youth pastor, my boss, uh, Rick, will be sharing uh, with all parents about our plan of student ministry. So if you have a parent or if you are a parent of 6th through 12th graders, we'd invite you down there just to learn more about what we're doing and how we can partner with you. Uh, we've been in a series that is about parenting and about family, ancient ways for the modern family. And so we've been talking about parenting. We've been talking about how we interact with the people in our families, even in our extended families. And sort of the theme, as, as, as I've listened to the last three weeks, if we could like sort of bring it all down to one main point has been love God, right? Like that's kind of the main point. In, in uh, Pastor Rick's message about the 10 commandments, right, he walks through, through the 10 commandments and then he summarized the 10 commandments. The first half is about loving God with all of our hearts and soul and mind and strength. And the second half is about loving other people. And then Pastor Chad last week walked us through chapter six and the main point of chapter six is what? Love God, right? Love God. What is the, if we, if we could melt all this down into one statement, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. And so this week, we've gone through chapters one through four in the first week, then five, the 10 commandments, then six last week. And this week, guess what the theme is in chapter eight? It's love God. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you know, sometimes when people remind us over and over and over and over about things, we go, I get it already. You know, we're like, I get it. Love God. That's kind of an important thing. I understand. I was talking to a mom this week and she was like, man, I'll tell my son to close the garage door when he gets home and he never remembers to do it. No matter how many times I tell him, right? Like I have currently, I have an office in the lower level. And right now there are five travel coffee cups in my office that my wife has told me to bring home 20 times maybe. Like, hey, don't forget to bring the cups home today. I got you, babe. I'm on it. Hey, did you bring the coffee cups home? Nope, forgot. <laughs> hey, don't forget, I put a note on your lunch. You know, bring the coffee cups home. Okay, I got it. I'm going to see the note. I'm going to bring the coffee cups home. Right now, like this has been going on for like a week. They're still in my office right now. Why? Because we're forgetful people right? We forget things. We oftentimes, we can walk out of this church and we can forget what was taught that day. We can walk out of school and forget what we learned that day. And so this constant reminder to love God is all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It's all throughout the Bible, but we're going to look at some ways in which we might be able to remember a bit better to help us remember to love God. And so my, 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 my main point for this morning is that God is on a mission to cause us to love him above everything with everything. God is on a mission to ensure that you love him above everything with everything. And in our text this morning, I think Moses gives us uh, some ways in which we could do that. So uh, if you would, let's pray together and then we'll go to the word. God, I thank you that even these ancient words from the ancient Near East thousands and thousands of years ago have power and they're applicable to our lives because they are your word. And your word is to reign supreme in our hearts, 
in our lives, in our families. And so as I preach this morning, Lord, would you help me to preach with boldness and with courage? Would you help all of us at CVC to have ears to hear what you would say to us and that you would cause us to be obedient to them? That we would not be people who forget your word and cease to do it, but that you would cause us to remember that these things that Moses calls us to do would help us to remember that we might all the days of our lives love you above everything and with everything. In your name we pray, amen. We'll be in Deuteronomy 8 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so it's sort of in the front section um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. So uh, when you leave, if you go out this, these doors to your right to the info desk and you just ask them for a Bible, you could say, hey, the bald guy said you'd give me a Bible, they'll give you a Bible. Uh, we want you to have that. It's the greatest gift that you'll ever receive from this church. And here is where we're going to start, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. So here we are again, Moses commanding obedience from the people. You shall be careful to do the whole command that I commanded you today. So that phrase, the whole command, what he's talking about is everything that he just said in the previous four chapters. And so it can be hard for us to go, you serious? Supposed to remember all of that stuff that you just, you know, from four chapters? Well, we're gonna, we're, gonna, uh, we're gonna summarize it because Jesus summarizes it, okay? When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Of all the commands, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says in Matthew 22, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. So in our text today, when you see that phrase, the commandments of the Lord or the whole commandment of the Lord, that's what we're talking about because we can summarize all of the things that we are commanded to do by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. It's the first and greatest commandment. It's the most important thing in the world to love God above everything with everything. So that's what Moses says to do. I want you to pay attention. Love God with everything, above everything, and then he gives us some ideas as to how we might do that. The first one is this. In order to love God above everything, with everything, look back. Look back, verse two. <clears throat> and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you. The past, right, our past and the past of others can be an excellent teacher, can it not, right? We're meant to learn lessons from the past, right? And have you, have you ever had one of those people in your life who's like, no matter what happens, they don't learn their lesson? 
It's like you've been in trouble over and over. And, and just, you know, we say, well, they haven't learned their lesson. Or that guy learns lessons the hard way, right? We say things like this when people don't learn their lesson. And what Moses is doing here is he is, he is recalling the history of Israel in order that this generation of believers or this, this generation of, Isra- of Israelites might learn their lesson. Because here's what happens. The, the, the people that Moses is talking to right now are the second generation of Israelites after the exodus from Egypt. The first generation, if you know the story, is almost as soon as they get re- uh, brought out of slavery, they start to complain, they start to whine. Oh, it would have been better to just leave us in Egypt, right? They don't trust God. They make idols for themselves. And honestly, God disciplines them and he guides them, but he has to discipline them to the point that he doesn't allow them into the promised land. They're so bent on not trusting God and going after other things that he finally draws a line in the sand and he says, you're not entering the promised land. And he causes them to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses is drawing this generation's attention to that discipline, to the humbling of those who had come before them, to the testing in the wilderness. But what I really, really love about this text and about God in general is that he just doesn't say, get out to the wilderness and then leaves them alone, right? He says, to recall the days of testing and discipline in the wilderness, the humbling, that I might test you to know what was in your heart. And then what does he say? I made you hunger that I might humble you. And then I fed you with manna, right? God creates the need in order that they might be reliant on him. And then he fills the need. He doesn't just say, go to your room and leaves them there. He goes and he meets the people of Israel where they are at. He provides for their needs. He says, you're closed for 40 years. They're wandering in the wilderness, some of the most difficult terrain in that area, and their clothes don't wear out. He provides for them, right? They're in rocky, scorpion-infested, dry land, and their feet never get infected. You military guys, you know how important that is, right? Your feet are really important. He says, your feet never were swollen. Your feet never got infected. And so he, he, he disciplines them. He puts them into a difficult place. But what he does is he shows them in the middle of the discipline, in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the trial, that they can rely on him to take care of them. And Moses says to the people, you're to remember that. You're to remember that, that you might learn your lesson. And Jesus quotes this text when he's tempted by the devil. He's tempted by the devil to make stones turn into bread. And Jesus says, I don't need to act of my own accord, even though he could have. He could have made those stones turn turn into bread, but he gives us a perfect example of reliance on the Father and the power of the Spirit in that moment. And so Moses is calling the people of Israel to look back and to remember the, the discipline of the wilderness, to remember the humbling of the wilderness, and to remember how God cared for them in the wilderness, to look back. And this is one of the things that we can do as well in our lives, is to look back. You know, each year we get a new set of interns here. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have a youth ministry internship. And kids come out of Bible college and they stay with us for a year. And the first thing that we do, the first thing that Rick and I do is we share our testimony with them. 
And I love doing that. I love doing it because what it does is it causes my mind to go back in time to remember God's faithfulness in my life, right? And we don't do that nearly as often as we should. I, I, I love to go back in time and talk about when I was a young man, uh, I was living a foolish, foolish life, and I was drinking so much that it just about killed me, and God disciplined me. He got my attention. I got in trouble for it. And what he did is he didn't just leave me out there, but he provided for me. He put men and women around me in this church, around me that restored me and pointed me back to Jesus Christ. I love to remember that because I look at my old foolishness and then I glory in God's graciousness in the midst of it. I love to look back on the moments when my wife and I were walking through the struggle of infertility. And we still have not been able to have our own kids. And I remember in those moments, I'm going, what are you doing? What are you doing? What am I doing wrong? But now I can look back and see that his plan was good for me. His plan was that we would adopt two little children that needed a mom and a dad. And so I look back on those moments and I go, he does know what he's doing. He does have the best in mind for me. Right? We can look back on those moments and it causes us both to be humbled by the person or the people that we used to be, and it causes our hearts to begin to soar in thankfulness of what God has done for us. And hopefully it causes us to learn our lessons. I'll tell you what, one of my favorite things about this place, about the people in this church, is we don't, like, we don't really have a lot of like holy rollers that are like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm kind of holy, right? If you are that person, like you're messing up our vibe, so stop, <laughs> right? But like what I love about this, I'm telling you, every person that I interact with, I meet new people all the time because there's, you know, this place is big and there's a lot of people. And like I meet people all the time that have just incredible stories of God rescuing them out of the mess that was their lives and drawing them to Jesus Christ and giving them a new hope and a new life and a new way to live. Right, I love that about this place. We're just a kind of a big bunch of broken people that worship a God that has radically saved us. So, amen, yeah. And if, if you're here this morning and you're wondering if this is a place for you, like, if you're really, really good already, like, this is not a place for you. If you're really, really broken and you need something else, uh, I think we've got it here, and namely, that's Jesus Christ. So, Welcome. Share, so here's the action point. Here's the action point. As we look back, we need to be people who would share our stories. Like we need to be people who would share our stories of God's goodness and of God's grace and of God's mercy with those people around us. Particularly as we think about ancient ways for the modern family, one of the greatest gifts that my mom and dad have ever given to me is my dad has shared stories with me about when he was not living for Christ, about the foolish bonehead, moron mistakes that he made, but then he always comes back to the goodness of the gospel, to the way that Jesus rescued him out of that old life. I love to hear stories of, of, of how God transformed my mom and dad. And so parents, if you've never shared, I mean, we need to be age appropriate, but if you've not shared your testimony with your children, it is about time you do that. Grandparents, man, instead of buying your kids like, you know, candy and letting them run amok all over your house, like say, come on, children, bring it in. Oh, grandpa's going to tell you the stories. 
about God's goodness in my life, right? Like we need to be doing that with one another. Maybe you need to do it with your spouse. You need to sit down and just, man, let's let's look back over the last many decades and just look at the story of God's goodness in our lives individually and of God's goodness in our life together. You know, another way that we can do that, this may seem a little stale to you, but it's really important is to look at church history. There are men and women for centuries that have come before us. And we need to read their stories. We need to learn about them. We need to point our children and one another to those stories. Like when you look at the life of St. Augustine, (laughs) he was not a saint for a very long time. And it's important to know that. When you look at the life of C.S. Lewis, he was a God hater for years before the Lord captured his heart. When you look at perhaps the most famous song ever in the world, Amazing Grace, was written by John Newton. You know why the grace is so amazing? Because John Newton was terrible. John Newton was an infamous slave trader and God radically rescued him and changed him. There's a book I want to commend to you. It's called 131 Christians That Everyone Should Know. And it's little vignettes. I was just talking to Chad, <laughs> to Chad outside and I said, actually, it's a good book to put in your bathroom because it's, you know, little short stories. <laughs> Share with your friends, Christian history. But we need to look back, right? We need to be people who would, who would look back. We look back at the, at the mistakes that we've made. We look back at the mistakes that others has that others have made. We look back at the goodness of God in our lives, and here's what it does. We don't just stay there. It does something. It does something, and that's my next point. In order to love God above everything, with everything, we need to look back, but then we need to look forward. We need to look back, but then we need to look forward, because here's the thing. All of that stuff is is really, really important, but ought to do something in us. It ought to create some sort of action in us. When we look back at our old life and look back at God's faithfulness, okay, what do I do now? Well, now it causes me to look forward and walk the narrow path of obedience, right? When we don't learn our lessons, we don't look forward. But when we learn our lesson, when we see all the, all the foolish mistakes that we've made, when we respond to God's discipline, we know that he's going to take care of us and that he has our good in mind. And so we look forward then to the path of obedience. Verse six, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. The word so here is really important. So you shall keep, right? Or we can insert therefore. Because in verse five, it says, so know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord will discipline those whom he loves. So God will discipline you again if you don't learn your lesson. God will cause more seasons of testing if you don't learn your lesson. So we look to the past, we respond to it then by obedience, by keeping the commandments of the Lord. And he gives us two ways to do that. In action, by walking in his ways, and in attitude, by fearing him. Now, when I talk about fear, fear of the Lord, it can't be that we're afraid he's going to, like, smite us. He's going to, like, you know, smack us around. Can't be that kind of fear because we've already seen in this story and in our stories that God cares for us. So it's not that kind of fear. It's more of a reverence. 
like an understanding of who God really is and a reverence in his presence that is based in hope and love. It's an attitude that recognizes God's discipline, but also his care, and then causes us to live differently. See, without a healthy fear of the Lord, here's what happens. Here's what happens without a healthy fear of the Lord. People have, have this sort of attitude. They go, well, I said a prayer in church one day that Jesus would forgive me of my sins. And so now I'm forgiven. Therefore, I can live however I want. That's what happens when we don't have a healthy fear of the Lord. When we don't recognize who he really is. And we don't recognize who we really are. And Paul addresses this in Romans 3. And so if you're that person, it's really, really important that you pay attention. Paul says in Romans 3, and why do evil that good may come as some people do? And he says this, their condemnation is just. So in essence, Paul is saying, people who pray a prayer and ask for forgiveness but don't really mean it and don't really work it out in their daily lives, who don't have a transformed heart that now obeys and fears the Lord, those people aren't real believers and their condemnation is just because they've trampled on the cross. They will get face to face with God someday and they'll be sorely mistaken about their status before him. See, we can get so easily distracted by the things that the world offers. We can, all, we, we can so often go back to the things that we used to love. We can be swayed. Like, have you ever been driving down the street? I did it this morning. I was eating a donut. <laughs> I was driving along, driving along, right? And I had my donut. And I was like, and then stuff got on my pants. And I was like, oh, no. No! You ever do that one? You know, or you're like, you're driving and like, we live in beautiful area and you're like, gosh, the foliage just, whoa. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what happens when we are not focused forward on the narrow road of obedience. These other things start to pull us away, start to pull our attention away. And before we know it, we're way over here on the wide road that leads to destruction. So let us look back to remember God's goodness in the midst of our foolishness, let us look forward to the narrow path of obedience. And then finally, let us look up. And this is the most important piece of this, I think, for our church. Look up, starting in verse seven. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and then pay real close attention right here. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So he's gonna bring them into the promised land. It's gonna be really, really good. Their response must be to bless him, to see all of these things as his and as coming from him. Why? Verse 11. Take care lest you forget, there we are back to forgetting, 
the Lord your God by not keeping his commands and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. You'll be filled with pride is what that means. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget, here it is, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. It's the same warning that God gave to Adam and Eve. If you don't listen to me, if you don't trust me, if you don't love me above everything with everything, you will surely die. You can sort of hear God pleading through this text. Like, I want you to love me. I want you to be close to me. I want you to abide in me. I want you to obey me. Not, be, not because I need some sort of morale boost. I want you to obey me and love me because I want what's best for you. And so I keep reminding you over and over and over again to love me because you are so prone to swerve off of the narrow path to start to love other things. When I bless you, you are so prone to stand back and look at things and go, well, look what I have done. Aren't I pretty special? Aren't I pretty good? Look at what I have provided for myself. And then what happens, here's what happens, church. God becomes a backstop in case things go wrong. We receive the blessings, things are going well, and our heart gets puffed up with pride. That's why he says you've got to keep looking back and remembering. Because when you have things, it's going to be so easy for you to make them ultimate things. Matt Chandler is a pastor in the Dallas suburbs in an area very similar to ours. Here's what he says. I think most of us spend the bulk of our trying, time trying to block out bad things, and we've lost sight of the fact that good things will kill you. Here's the temptation, he says. The moment you take a good thing and you make it ultimate, you've pretty much decided that that thing will be the thing that destroys you. Let's take money. For whatever reason, you started to get money. You get a good job, and then it becomes addicting. And you wanted more and more, and all of a sudden, before you know it, money is ultimate. And if money is ultimate, then all your relationships in your life are to bring about the ultimate end of getting money, getting comfort. So now your friends are those around you are only those people who can help you get more money, which means you're a horribly lonely human being. 
Not only that, but now family becomes secondary to the ultimate goal of money. Our children become secondary. Your integrity becomes secondary. And God becomes secondary. And money ruins you because money was never meant to be ultimate. When placed in the position of ultimate, it destroys everything else underneath it. Here's another one that's about to hit home. What about your children? Your children ultimate? As a youth pastor, I see this all the time, and it terrifies me. God has blessed you with kids. You have beautiful kids. And you might say with your words that God is most important, that you love God above everything else, but then day in and day out, week after week, practice after practice, rehearsal after rehearsal, test after test, you and your family prove that God is secondary. Right, like raising kids in the suburbs is like a, is a contact sport, right? Like it's serious. Because, and here's the thing, like we love our kids. And it's, and it's hard, it's, it's hard living in the world, living in our public middle schools and high schools specifically, and you want your kids to be popular, and you want them to have friends, and you want them to be on the honor roll, and you want them to be invited to the dance or to the party. You want, them, you want to be, the, you know, standing by the dad on the soccer field, like, it's my boy out there, man, he's good, right? Like, that's what we want to do. We want our kids, like, we, 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 we want them to have and to do, and so we cast to them this vision we cast them this vision that if you work really hard and you're good at the sport, then you get a scholarship. Or if you get good grades, then you get into a really good college, and then you get into a really good college, and you get a degree, and you get a really good job, and you get lots of money, and then what you, what you preach to them essentially is that God is secondary. Or day in and day out, with the things that we do, we teach our kids that the, that the world revolves around them. That they're most important, and they get out to a world where that is not true, and it just blows their life up. You think they're going to look back with fondness on your parenting when they get out, out into the real world and they are sorely mistaken that they're not the center of everything? Or when the talent dries up? Or when they can't get a job because they can't interact with people correctly, they think they're the most important. Or when the scholarship falls by the way. When we make our children ultimate, we do them perhaps the most egregious disservice in the world. And then here's what happens. Here's what happens. Then people come to the youth pastor guy and they go, Fix my 18-year-old. Fix my college student. Fix my young adult. He's way off the rails. He's drinking himself into oblivion. He's living in my basement. And I go, what do you want me to do? For 20 years, you told him that God was secondary. What am I supposed to do with that? Now, God, oh, man, is he gracious to bring back our prodigals. He can do it. <laughs> I can't. We've got, we've got to get a handle on our schedules. We've got to get a handle on what we put ultimate in our families, in our children's lives. Some of you need to go home and have a real serious talk. Let me tell it drives me crazy that the schools are allowed to do things on Sunday. I can't handle it. It was not that way when I was a kid. And that they have practice, I think, is, is an affront to God 
and his people and the Sabbath. And I believe that if the people of CVC would all stand up together as families and say, we're not doing anything on Sundays, that maybe Brexville and Independence and North Royalton might have to switch things around a little bit. Sorry, that fires me up, man. <laughs> when, I, when I hear, oh, well, my son already made a commitment to, I already made a commitment to that. What about his commitment to the Lord? It like, blows my brain apart. Makes me want to kick something, man. Yeah. Whew. But it's what we do, right? I know I'm being a little bit funny, but that's what we do. We will take good things and we'll make them ultimate and as soon as we make them ultimate, they destroy everything. Be it money or our children, or maybe like maybe you're a super health person and some people are really into health and like that's really good. I just read a story this week about a young lady, 25, who overdosed on protein. She found out very quickly that she was mortal. Maybe you're a single person here and you're looking for that special somebody, let me just give you a word of advice. If you're expecting that person to be ultimate to you, to fulfill you fully, you are going to destroy every relationship that gets within 10 feet of you because that man or woman is not meant to be that for you. They can't be that for you. God is to be that for you. And only when you get those things in order can you have a true and fulfilling relationship. And what God will do Here's what he'll do. This is how he works. He will discipline us again if things get out of order. He will take things away from you. He will take away your job. He will take away your money. He will take away your health. He will take away your safety. He will keep you from relationships. And here's why. This is the, this is, this is the why. This is the why loving God is so important because of verse 19. If you forget the Lord your God, and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Here's the danger of God allowing us to love other things more than him, of God allowing us to rely on other things than him. If God allows us to think that we can provide for ourselves, provide food for ourselves, provide a house for ourselves, make our children be the type of children that we want them to be, have a bank account and retirement for ourselves. If, if God allows us with no discipline to just think that we can provide for ourselves in all of these ways that we don't need to rely on him, here's what will happen. We will be prone to think that we can rely on ourselves for our salvation. And that, my friends, is deadly because you and I cannot save ourselves. As I said before, we're just, we're broken. If you look back on your life, you know it. A bunch of other people might not know it, but you know it and I know it, we're broken and we need a savior. And see, the Israelites, they never learn their lesson. If you follow the story through, they don't learn their lesson. Even after this, they don't learn their lesson. And they continue to walk away from God and they continue to disobey. And they continue to prop up other idols in their lives. And it gets to the point where they're so steeped in their sin that actually God causes them to go into slavery again. And here's what happens. They prove 
they prove that they cannot save themselves. They prove that they cannot hold up their end of the bargain. So what does God do? As you say, then get out of here. I'm done with you. Is that what he does? Nope. He says, since you can't obey, since you can't hold up your end of the bargain, since you can't love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, I'm gonna cause it to happen for you. It's incredible. So God himself, Jesus Christ, comes to this earth. He leaves heaven and he lives a perfect life. He lives the life that we could not live. And he allowed the Romans to crucify him on a cross. He took the penalty that you and I deserve. And then he rose again from the grave to conquer sin and death once and for all, forever, satisfying our requirements to God. That if we might put our trust and our faith in him, that we could receive his righteousness. That's what the Bible tells us. That we, when we accept the free gift of salvation from Jesus, that we put on his righteousness. The perfection that he displays, we put it on us. And when God looks at you and I, he doesn't see that old person that you used to be. He doesn't see your sin he doesn't see your disobedience. He doesn't see your foolishness. He sees the work of Jesus on your behalf. And so if, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you're here and you're like, eh, it's first time. I want you to know that Jesus loves you dearly. God loves you dearly and he wants you to love him back because it's the best thing for you. And he's given his life so that you might know him. And we're not big here for asking people to stand up or come forward, but at the end of service, if you want to know more, if you want to respond to Jesus, if you want to like, hey, I, want to, I want to know more about this God who loves me so much, there's some people that are going to be in this back corner. There'll be a light that'll turn on and that'll kind of signal you, ooh, the light. Um, you can go back there and they'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. You could join this community of people who are just a bunch of broken, washed up, you know, good for nothings that have found a new life in Jesus Christ. I also want to call the rest of you to respond to this. To commit right now in this moment that you will respond to this truth that's in the Bible. To look back and to look forward and to look up. To love God above everything with everything. Because here's what can happen. You can sit under a teaching and some of you might come out in the foyer and you'll shake my hand and you'll say, good sermon, brother. And I'll go, yeah, that's great, but I don't really care unless when you walk out these doors, you do something about it. That's the truth. Like from now on, every time you shake my hand and you say good sermon, I want you to know what I'm thinking in my head is, I don't care if it was a good sermon. <laughs> I want you to do something about it. I want you to respond to God's word. That's, that's, that's how you can, that's how you can, say to myself or Chad or Rick or whoever, hey, good sermon, is that the Holy Spirit might move you to action. So here's some ways. Some of you need to make a plan with your spouse or with your friends or with your family to, to look back, to spend some time sharing your story of God's goodness. Maybe to tell your kids about the bonehead mistakes that you used to make. Maybe you and your wife look back about and, and you look at the days when you didn't have anything and God saw you through. Maybe grandparents, you gather the family together and you just share the stories of living 
living you know, back when you, when, when you were in the army or when you couldn't find a job or during the Great Depression and how God saw you through. Let us be people who would look back and share our stories with one another, that it might cause us then to look forward to the path of obedience because some of us are not. There are some people in this room who are just coasting. You said a prayer one time and you would claim to be a Christian, but now your life doesn't really reflect doesn't really reflect that. And maybe there are some secret sins in your life, things that other people don't know about, and you walk around and you have kind of the happy face on and you come to church on Sunday, but when you go home or in the dark when you're alone or when you're at work or when you're at the gym with the guys or the girls, whatever happens to be, you're living a different life. The discipline of God has not caused you now to walk forward in obedience. And you need to repent. Maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now and he's just pointing at some area, and you need to repent. We're going to take communion in a minute. Don't take communion unless you deal with that sin. Maybe you need to spend some time confessing to your wife or to your parents or to a friend. And then finally, I, I worry so much about our church because we live in America, first and foremost, and we live in suburban America. And I know there's a pretty significant socioeconomic gap amongst our church, but whether you're super rich or super poor, if you live here in America, you're doing pretty well. And we can be prone to put God's gifts up as ultimate. We can start to worship them. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration. I'm going to close with this because I'm over. He talks about a beam of light coming through the slats in a barn. And as you look at that, have you ever seen this in your house when there's all these particles? that are in the light, and you go, get out of here. That is so cool. That's the way that we look at God's blessings, right? Like, oh man, he's given me a job or a family or a wife or money or things. We're to look at them, but that cannot be the end. The particles are not the goal. What those things are meant to do is to cause our eye to be guided back up the beam to the source of light that shines on all of those good gifts. And maybe your eyes on the gifts, friends. And he might take some of those things away from you and it's for your good that your eye might be drawn back up the beam towards the giver of all good things. Let us be a church. Let us be a people who would love God above everything, with everything. And the way that we can do that is to look back, to look forward, and to look up. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this teaching this morning. We thank you that I, I'm just amazed. I'm amazed as I look at the book of Deuteronomy, written thousands of years ago, that it still speaks to us today. Thank you that your word is alive and it's living and it's active. And I trust today that it has pierced into the hearts of the hearers of it. And so I pray that that. My, my brothers and sisters here would not quickly forget your teaching this morning. We can be so prone to walk out those doors and to see the sun and to have our plans for the day and we immediately forget the things that you've taught us and how we ought to respond to them. Cause us, Father, to respond to your word, to be obedient to it, to look back to all that you've done, to look forward in willing and loving and glad obedience and to look up in gratefulness and thankfulness for all that you've given. I pray that this, 
this church this, in this affluent area that we would use all of our resources, our houses and our cars and our school systems and our jobs and everything else that you've given us for your glory, that we would use it for missional purposes to impact our, our neighborhood, to impact the city, and to take the gospel to the ends of the world. May it be so. In your name we pray. Amen.